So we are turning once more to the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 16. Uh, We're going to read the first 24 verses. Um, Let's pick up right there at the beginning of that chapter. Um, It should be in the handout that is provided. But if you have a Bible, that works too. Um, But let's read it together. And these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills, who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Verse five, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the father. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you once again and we are so grateful for Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that through Christ, you have brought us back to yourself. You've brought us back into a relationship with you, the living God. And we're thankful that you've given us your word because you desire to speak to us. And so I ask now as we study your word that you would open our ears to hear, that you would open our eyes to see, and that you would cause our hearts to delight in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before Bible college, uh, I was actually like super into working out, fun fact. I think I shared this when, uh, when I, I first came and candidated here. Um, but I was, I was really into working out. So I was going uh, six days a week for probably anywhere from two and a half to three hours at a time. Uh, and so my goal was is I really wanted to, I really wanted to, to participate in a powerlifting competition. That was my goal. And so I was, I was training my body. I was, I was working really hard to achieve. I had these three specific goals that I had set. And it's like, as soon as I meet these goals, I'm going to enter into a, a powerlifting competition. Um, and so I was spending the time preparing myself, preparing my body for this, this competition. I didn't just uh, show up to a competition and hope that I would win, right? I actually took the time to train for this, uh, this competition. And so the reason that I bring that up is because the theme for this, uh, for this message is training for trials. So if you're taking notes, that's kind of the, the theme. It's training for trials. And the reason that I share that story is because, once again, we find that Jesus is telling his disciples uh, some, some truths that they need to hear to prepare them for the reality that he is not going to be physically present with them any longer. In fact, even when we go back to the first week when we started reading in John 13, Jesus said, or John wrote of Jesus, it said that he knew that he had come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father, right? And so Jesus, knowing that he was no longer going to be bodily present with his disciples, he also knew that he was going to send the Holy Spirit uh, to empower the church, which we'll talk, to, we'll talk about a little bit tonight. Um, but knowing that his dearest friends in the world were going to be without him, uh, without his physical presence, he begins trying to train them for the reality that trials are going to come in this life. Trials are going to be a natural part of this life. And what's interesting is that Jesus, rather than telling them to go and like provoke people so that they can experience persecution and get it, you know, get a little bit of experience with it, rather than telling them to go out and be antagonistic, instead of doing that, he gives them truth. He gives them truths that they need to know ahead of time and believe so that they are prepared for the trials when they come. Now, why is that important? Because we always 
live in light of our beliefs. We always live in light of our beliefs. So for instance, um, if you, I'm trying to think of a good example here. Um, well, let's take, let's take COVID for instance. Um, you have two different worldviews that are operating. You have, on the one hand, you have one view that says, um, I don't think masks are all that effective and I don't think that, um, I don't think it's that serious, right? And so those people live in light of that worldview. And then you have, on the other side, you have people who say, uh, we think COVID is really serious and we're going to get a vaccine and we're going to wear masks. And they live in light of that belief. So what a person believes influences the way that they behave. And so Jesus, being a kind and wonderful friend and Savior and Lord, is telling them these truths so that they may believe them and then act in light of those truths. Does that make sense to you guys? So there's four things that uh, Jesus tells the disciples that we can kind of pull out of this passage. There's probably more, um, but there's four specific ones. And so I'm going to sum them up in one word for each point, and then I'll kind, of, uh, I'll kind of expand on them a little bit. So the four words are this, preparation, conviction, inspiration, and expectation. So preparation, conviction, inspiration, expectation. So let me, let me uh, elongate those a little bit. So the first one, this idea of preparation, Jesus tells the disciples that they should be prepared to suffer. They should be prepared to suffer. Second thing is that conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. The third thing, the Holy Spirit has inspired the scriptures. So that's that inspiration. The Holy Spirit has inspired the scriptures. And the fourth thing is this, is that we as Christians, our expectation should be that sorrow will turn into joy. Our expectation should be that sorrow will turn into joy. Let's dive in here in the first four verses. Um, look with me at verse one. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. And then look at verse four. These things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of these things. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Did you catch that? That last phrase, because I was with you. So Jesus knows that he's about to leave the disciples. And so he wants to prepare them for the reality of persecution. In fact, if you look at verse 2, it says they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. What does verse 2 say in, in your translation, in the, in the handout? They will, they will put you out of the synagogue. Um, and so Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples. Who knows what uh, were the disciples, what was the disciples' religion? Were they Jewish? Right? So they were Jewish initially, right? And so the synagogue, what is a synagogue? Somebody tell me what the synagogue is. Any ideas? Yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, so in, in that day, that was the, it was the place where people who were Jewish, there was a place where they would worship God. And so, in effect, Jesus is telling his disciples beforehand, if you follow me, if you are my disciples, they will throw you out of the church, for lack of a better term. They will throw you out of the synagogue. And not only that, he says um, that there's going to be a time coming when the person who kills a disciple of Jesus will think that he's doing it to honor God. And so now remember, he's saying this not primarily to you and I, but he's saying this to the disciples. But the enduring implication of it is that we as disciples, as people who are followers of Jesus, should expect to suffer. We should be prepared to suffer. And the interesting thing about being a follower of Jesus is that we, there's actually two levels of suffering. So we get an extra level of suffering, guys. Isn't that good? Um, <laughs> so I'll, give you the, I'll tell you what the two layers are. The first layer is life in a fallen world, life in a sinful, broken world. Everybody experiences that level of suffering. If you, all you have to do is read the news, you look at what's going on in the Middle East, you look at what's going on in you know, a ton of different countries out there. This world is broken. This world has turned its back on God. And as a result of that, suffering is everywhere. So that's that first level of, of suffering. It's just life in this world necessarily involves uh, trouble, necessarily involves trials. And then the second layer of that is if you are a Christian, you, have, you get to enjoy that first portion of it, yeah? But then you also have the added layer of you follow Christ. And so because of that, you will experience suffering for the name of Christ. Uh, I'll give you an example. So I've been reading this book um, called Awake and Alive to Truth. And so I've talked to a couple of you about it. It's written by the lead singer of the band Skillet. Um, it's a really good book. Highly recommend it. Um, but he tells this story, and it kind of it illustrates the point that I'm making. Um, so he tells the story at the beginning of the book and how they were just kind of, the band was really starting to take off, and they uh, were kind of gaining some traction. And so they were at this, this after party where they were actually bowling with some of these, like, really big-name bands and, like, record producers. Um, and... Uh, and even like professional athletes and stuff. And so he's telling this story and he's saying uh, that this big name record producer comes up to him and he says, you know, John, you guys have a great sound. You've got that positive vibe. You've got that, that, that positive message that people really want to hear. You could be really popular. I could make you really famous. And he's like, but there's one thing that you need to stop doing. And so, he, you know, asking him, what is it? got to stop talking about Jesus. You've got to stop talking about Jesus. If you stop talking about Jesus, you'll be popular. And so John, being a good Christian, said, thanks, but no thanks. And as a result of that, God has actually blessed them, and they have actually gained traction and become a popular Christian band that has been around for over 20 years. But that's just one example of if you want to be a Christian living in this fallen world, you experience 
uh, setbacks like that. You experience persecution because, like we talked about last week, the world is at war with God. And if you are a child of God, you are automatically a target in that war. Um, And the reason that I say that to you and the reason that it's relevant to you guys is because I can't tell you how I was just talking with someone this morning, talking with a dad who um, his kids have walked away from the faith because they went through something difficult. I was just talking with someone and I don't want you guys to walk away from your faith because you are shocked that someone made fun of you for being a Christian or you are shocked that bad things happen to you. We as Christians, we need to be prepared beforehand for the reality that we not only live in a fallen and broken world, but we are marked as a child of God. We are part of God's family. And so because of that, we will automatically receive the scorn of the world. And you need to know that in advance so that when you go off to college or when you are in the schools, you're not surprised by the reality that people don't think you're the coolest thing since sliced bread, right? Um, You guys need to know that. So we should expect suffering at both levels as, as human beings and as followers of Jesus. So then moving into this next section here, he begins talking about the Holy Spirit. Once again, I think this is the last, the last section where the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Um, but in verses 5 through 11, it's kind of interesting. Um, he talks about this idea of conviction, this idea that conviction is the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, look with me at verse, at verse 8. It says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then in verses 9, 10, and 11, he goes on to explain how, uh, what that kind of looks like. And, and he kind of delineates a little bit on that, this idea of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so it's this idea that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to come uh, to those that do not know God and show them uh, and open their eyes to see that they are wrong in, about the area of sin, they're wrong about the area of righteousness, and they're wrong about the area of judgment. And then he gives these, these three specific examples. But So for instance, he says uh, they're wrong about, the, about, um, about sin. And then he says, what's the reason that he gives in verse 9? Because they do not believe in me. So this, what the, the Holy Spirit does is, see, the world at that particular time, they crucified Jesus and they called him a sinner. In fact, in Isaiah, it talks about how they, uh, they buried him and they crucified him with sinners, right? So they treated him as though he's a sinner. In fact, that's what the Pharisees called him, right? And so the Holy Spirit, one of his, uh, one of his roles is to teach people that Jesus is not, in fact, a sinner, but he is, in fact, God. And the interesting thing is if you... Uh, so the crazy thing is, okay, so check this out. In Acts uh, chapter 2, 
if you look at verse, let's, I'll flip there for you. So Jesus makes this promise, okay? He says that uh, the Holy Spirit, he's going to convict people uh, and he's going to give them a new understanding regarding these three areas, right? And then this is when the Holy Spirit comes, okay? Acts chapter two, check this out. Uh, Peter, okay, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He starts preaching to people. And then chapter two, verse uh, 36 says this. This is Peter speaking to the people. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, okay? So Peter's preaching it up, right? And the Holy Spirit falls, 3,000 people get saved, and this is their response. Verse 37, he says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's crazy is to think that these people that he's talking to, some of them may have been among the crowd that said, crucify him. Isn't that crazy to think that some of those people could have been the very ones that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And then 50 days later, after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit works in their heart and they repent. They say, oh, we made a mistake what do we do now? And then Peter says, repent, turn from your sins, trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit did exactly what Jesus promised that he would do. So that's the idea of this, this, uh, they were wrong concerning sin. Look back at uh, verse nine. Uh, excuse me, verse 10, he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So once again, the Pharisees and the, the world at that, in that particular region, by and large, thought that Jesus was unrighteous. In, in fact, it was said that he was a friend of sinners, right? To them, that was a slam. They were like, like ooh. You know, or uh, another instance is Jesus, the, the woman who comes and she's like wiping, you know, wiping his feet, his feet with her hair. Um, and then the Pharisee says in his mind, and Jesus somehow knew what he was thinking, which is crazy in and of itself. Um, but he's like, oh, man, if Jesus knew who this was, who was touching him, he definitely, you know, wouldn't. And uh, so it's just it's it basically these people have this idea of righteousness that is not God's idea of righteousness. The world has an idea of righteousness. You guys have an idea of righteousness that may not align with God's idea. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is righteousness? And Jesus, the proof that he is the standard of righteousness, it says, because I go to the Father. In other words, because God raised Christ from the dead and he ascended back to the Father, that is the proof that Jesus is the ultimate standard of righteousness. He's the ultimate standard of what it means to honor God. And the interesting thing is the word righteousness, that Greek word there, it literally means to be as you were made to be. So then the obvious question, how were we made to be? What was, what's our purpose? You're made for two things, to know God, love God, 
and to love people. To know God, love God, and love people. And then all you have to do is look at the world and you can very easily see that most people don't love God and they're not very good at loving one another either. The only way that that gets fixed is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, convicts people of their wrong understanding of righteousness and says, no, this is the way. And he points people, like we were talking about last week, points people to Jesus. Third thing. So they're wrong concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So once again, they made judgments about Jesus, that particular uh, generation of unbelieving Jews and even the by and large, the world uh, made and to this day still makes incorrect judgments about who Jesus is. And in fact, Jesus previously, and the reason that this kind of relates is he says the ruler of this world has been judged. And so what Jesus is saying there is that people who make incorrect judgments are aligned with the ruler of this world. Who do you guys think the ruler of this world is? Who, who do you think Jesus is talking about there? If he's not talking about himself, and he's not talking about the Father, what do you think? Any thoughts? Yeah. He's talking about Satan. Yeah. So he's saying that the ruler of this world, this, uh, this um, Satan, he's been judged. Okay, And so a opinion, a judgment about Jesus that is incorrect or insufficient or unbiblical is a satanic judgment. And so Jesus is saying that uh, the world is wrong about me. And the evidence of that is that the one that the world follows, Satan, has been judged through the death and resurrection of Christ. Through the work of Christ, Jesus uh, defeated him at the cross. So those are those three areas. So the Holy Spirit, we think of this role of conviction, and we think of it like uh, like a flashlight. Imagine, uh, imagine with me for a moment that you lived your entire life in a a completely dark prison cell. You never took a shower, never combed your hair. You're just you're stinky and you're grimy. And th- but this is all you've ever known. Okay, imagine imagine that with me. Now, what the Holy Spirit does is He brings light into that cell and a mirror, which is the Word of God. James says that the Word of God acts as a mirror and it shows us what we truly look like. And so the Holy Spirit shines the light on us and holds up the word of God, which he inspired, which we're going to get to next, and says, you are unclean. You are unclean. But there's good news for those of us who are dirty and stinky sinners. Jesus. Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit, not only does he point out those areas of sin, weakness, and failure, but he points us to Jesus. And he says that every single one of those sins, weaknesses, and failures, Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for those. 
and he rose again to prove to you that you are right with God and God loves you. In fact, if you guys ever, this is just for free, okay? This is a little free thing right here. If you ever wonder if God loves you, don't ever look at your life circumstances, okay? Always look to the cross. Always look at what Jesus Christ did for you when he died. That is the measure of God's love for you. If he never did anything else for you, that would be enough. So the Holy Spirit, he brings, he brings conviction. And this is relevant for you because I would be willing to bet that some of you have friends that don't know Jesus, right? Show of hands, how many of you have friends who don't know Jesus? Okay, so most of us in the room, okay? The reason that that's important is because you can share the gospel, you can share truth, and you should because God demands that of us. But you are not responsible for that person's response to the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes minds and hearts. Okay, so Holy Spirit in also inspires the scriptures or inspired the scriptures. Verses 12 through 15, he says that he has more things to tell the disciples, but they cannot bear them at this moment. But then he talks about the Holy Spirit and his role. He says that he will guide you into all truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come and he will glorify me. Those verses 13 and 14. And so right here, what Jesus is talking about, remember, he's talking to the disciples, okay? So these words are not, first of all, to you and me, they're to the disciples. And so he's saying, first, that he will guide you into all truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. So this idea of telling the future, in fact, we have books in the New Testament, and there were books in the Old Testament that predicted the future, and then those events came to pass, and then we have certain books in the New Testament that talk about the future, and those things will come to pass just the same as uh, God brought the things to pass in the former times. So with that being said, Jesus is once again articulating this idea that the Holy Spirit is going to uh, bring to the disciples' remembrance uh, the teachings of Jesus, and the and he's also going to reveal new things. For instance, the book of Revelation, uh, John uh, was given this this revelation from God while he was on the island of Patmos, and that book tells us a little bit about the future. Um, so, with that being said, um, this section here 12 through 15 is not primarily something that you and I look at and say well God's going to lead me into all truth and he's going to tell me the future right that's not exactly what this is talking about this is directly talking about the inspiration of scripture so you can think of it like this have you guys ever thought about what the like what the bible is have you guys ever thought about the fact that it's human authors wrote it and yet at the same time God inspired it 
So everything that is written is God's word. And yet at the very same moment, it is also, it's not like God mind-controlled the Apostle John when he was writing this. Have you guys ever thought about that? And so this, this idea of Scripture and the way it was written, this is what theologians call the doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence. So it's the idea that while John is truly using and writing the words that he uh, wants to write, the Holy Spirit is inspiring those same words. So the exact words that John writes are the exact ones that the Holy Spirit wanted him to write without mind controlling him or anything like that. It's a, uh, a little bit of a, a mystery for us. But um, think, about it, think about it like this. Um, you guys familiar with Hamlet, the, the play? Okay. So when Hamlet uh, performs an action, uh, is that the response? Who's responsible for that? Is it Hamlet or is it Shakespeare? Well, the answer is yes. It's either, it's both. Hamlet truly wants to perform that action, right? And Shakespeare is the one who wrote that action into existence and wrote Hamlet into existence. This is the way that we can think about scripture. What we have in the Bible is exactly what God wants us to have. They are his very words. He just happened to work through and utilize the words of the apostles, the words that God gave to them. And this is relevant. You guys need to know this because when you go through trials, when you go through difficult things, you need to know that you have legitimate communication from God. You need to know that you have God's very words available to you. Peter talks about the precious promises of God. And this is the the context. uh, Jesus is talking about these these trials and suffering. And so we need to hear from God in the midst of our suffering. And God has given us his word and many precious promises in his word. So... We're moving on to the last point here, and then we're going to jump into our groups. Um, But the last point is this, that our expectation should be that sorrow will turn into joy. That sorrow will turn into joy. Look at verse 22. It says, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus is talking about the fact uh, in that section of 16 through 24, he's talking about the fact that he's going to be crucified, that um, the disciples, they're going to be grieved at the loss of their Savior, but he's going to come back to them. He's going to be resurrected and he's going to come back. And this is kind of a, a picture of... The reality of the Christian life. You see, we in this current state of affairs, in this fallen world, we experience grief. 
we experience sorrow, we experience trials. But Jesus is going to come back to us. And the Bible has a very precious promise that I'm going to read to you guys for the days when you are feeling overwhelmed and feeling frustrated by uh, just the, the pressures of life and the trials that you go through. I want you guys to write this down. It's Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And this is what it says. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. And he, speaking of God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You guys should write that down and you should memorize it, because that is one of those promises in the Bible that we need to have in our back pocket when you go through difficult things. It's Revelation 21, 3 through 4. All of Revelation 21 is awesome, so you should check it out. Um, But this hope that I just described to you, this, it's not, think of it this way. You might hope that school is canceled tomorrow, but you expect that gravity will keep you on the ground tomorrow, okay? So this is the difference. It's, this hope is sure and steadfast. The hope that Christ will come and he will remove sin and death. That hope is sure. And we need to have this in our minds as we go through difficult things. And so I'll close by saying this, is that in this life, we will have trials. In fact, Pastor Aaron is going to come here next week and he's going to talk a little bit more about that because I'm going to be officiating a wedding uh, next Sunday. Um, but we, we're going to have trials and tribulations. But we can take heart because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Let's pray together and then we're going to jump into our groups.